Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they lived in another city around the world. And this show is brought to you by Anytime Soccer Training. Anytime Soccer Training is the only training uh, program with well over 5,000 training videos. Every video is 100% follow along. Check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more. You can join for absolutely free and get a lot of great free training videos and upgrades or less than a dinner for two. Now let's get on to the show. This is going to be a quick midweek episode, which is a follow-up to a very specific thing I talked about in the last podcast. And in the last podcast, um, I talked about the fact that I happen to be a process improvement person. And that means that when I see any situation, I'm always thinking about how can we do it better? And one thing about me is I don't have, um, I don't place stigmas or taboos on the thing that we want to improve. Um, and this can be a little countercultural. So for example, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, open heart surgery, which is obviously very important, or I-9 flag football, which is in the grand scheme of things, not particularly important. To me, I look at it, if I, if I observe 100 I-9 football programs, uh, I, I will observe things and say, oh, of those hundreds, I saw these are the best practices that seem like they work best for the families, the parents, and the players. And if I observe 100 open heart surgeries, different doctors, different hospitals, it's the same thing. Even though I'm not a doctor, I will be able to say, hey, this is what I have observed. This seems to be, this seems to work more or it seems to work better than this, or this is something they're not doing, but I can pull that from another experience I have that if they implement it, it appears to be better. But again, when you go down this road of process improvement, you're going to, you, you will receive certain feedback that we want to talk about today because we're producing this podcast for members of our coaching community who would be interested in coming onto the show. So the first one is a coach the taboo or the stigma. So when I first set out to start working with my children, uh, especially my oldest one, I saw that I was, he was getting better, but what I was doing was not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable because I had to spend a lot of time uh, researching stuff. So it was a long learning curve. Um, and I got on his last nerves. And I knew as a parent, if I'm going to help him long term, I can't can't be this much friction every time we go to the field. So I wanted to improve that process. And when I went out to the what I would consider to be the established soccer community and started asking questions about this, the responses were typically along the lines of an ethical conversation. You should not be doing this with your child if if they don't want to do it that would be an example or you are thinking you can turn your child into a professional soccer player that would be another one these are all sort of ethical and moral um judgments and for me as a discerning parent i was like yes we all have those emotions and those are important 
emotions to deal with. And I would be lying to you if I said this was a completely rational choice. No human, most humans don't make 100% rational approach. There's some emotional stuff in there, some irrational stuff in there. It's what we call animal spirits in there that impact your choices. And you need to be aware of those and to the best you can put that stuff in check. But there was also a rational uh, reason I was helping my child. And that was because I put him in this competitive environment. And I saw that his competency was directly linked to his enjoyment. In other words, the more competent he became, the more he seemed to enjoy the experience. Right. And I was not. And it was very difficult to have that conversation because, again, what was thrown at us was all of these ethical uh, uh, assertions. And that's one of the reasons why I created the community because I wanted a safe space where people could have these more um, uh, discerning conversations about working with their own cat kids without the layer of judgment being thrown at them. And I actually think over the last three years, we have made small progress. What I mean by that is I vividly remember initially having these conversations and just being berated. Now, slowly, we are building more of an understanding so that we can dig even deeper. And, and, and parents are feeling more comfortable being transparent about what they're doing, right? And I always, and people, I always tell people, you can call me, email me, whatever, if you have a question, and I'll share my experience. Well, another um, area of process improvement I like to look at is the clubs and to a much lesser extent, the coaching community. But I'm not looking at it from the perspective of I know more than them or I'm a club director or a coach at all. I cannot do what these lovely people do. I'm not trained in that way. I'm looking at it more as a consumer advocate. So I'm taking some information from here, taking information here, seeing, seeing this, seeing that. And I'm going back out to parents who have not had these experiences yet uh, and sharing what I am seeing. And then they share what they see and we all learn together from a consumer advocate perspective. But the problem is when you talk and you need the actual um, soccer community to help you with the information, right? But the problem is when you talk to the soccer community from a consumer, advocate perspective, it can be a very difficult conversation because they feel under attack, attack. Or um, we are perceived in a way that may or may not be our intentions. And so oftentimes when you ask, you know, I might ask questions, how you know this, how you know that, then you're lumped into a uh, category that you don't fit nicely in. Like maybe you're a crazy parent or you only care about winning or you put this over that or you prioritize this over this or you try to or you're as a parent you're co-opting youth sports all of these ethical things are thrown at you and you just want to be a little bit more discerning so i'm doing this podcast um because i've had one such conversation i've had several of these conversations over the last couple of weeks and what has been said i just can't completely reconcile so I'm doing this this particular show to lay these out. I'm going to try to give some real examples of the conversations I've had. 
uh, I'm going to share how I tend to think about these things so that members of our coaching community who want to uh, be involved in this conversation and uh, in a safe space can jump onto the show and share their perspective. That's the purpose of this show. So this show, again, we talk about progress improvement, but it's really going to talk about the area of development, okay? And the first thing I think uh, needs to happen that doesn't happen as much as I would like to, when we start talking about development or any area in soccer, is we need to define as specifically as we can what we're actually talking about. Because if we don't, then we're just having generalized conversations where we're sharing truisms that are obviously true, but we're just operating in our own silos based on our own experiences. So it's so when you offer a definition, especially a strict definition, you're not saying, at least in my case, that that definition is correct, but you can't even tackle what I'm trying to say if you don't know exactly what's in twirling around in my head, and I owe it to you guys. So, um, so the first thing when it comes to development is I tend to separate them into two big, broad categories or separate the area into two big, broad categories. First is all the non-soccer human stuff. While that is extremely important, you would even argue it's more important than the soccer stuff, I'd like to separate it for a couple of reasons. Number one is it's very personal to the person. So the things that my sons, for example, they're in two different clubs and they're in different clubs. A lot of the reasons they're in two different clubs is all their non-soccer stuff because it's personal to their personalities, right? And so you can't really advise anybody on their personal situation. And it's so subjective that you never really reach a consensus. You know, you can give some insight, but it's just so general. Another reason is I felt like the non-soccer stuff is well publicized and well covered, right? You, you talk to anyone about, if you go on a blogosphere or Google and search what makes a good coach, you're going to get a lot of non-soccer information that can help you. Another reason is there are other institutions that provide non-soccer uh, services that can help your child become a better person, the family, the church, the school. So there are other folks doing good work that your child, um, that your organizations that your child are a member of that are doing good work. So it's very difficult to know how much of that is coming from the club uh, versus coming from other institutions. So, so that's part of the non-soccer stuff as well. And finally, it's very subjective, right? So it's really difficult to, to know. And you and I would think it would be kind of harsh to hold the club accountable in any way to some of the non-soccer stuff because they only have the child for a small amount of time. Yeah, they work to make someone a better person. But, you know, if, if, if the child comes home and they make an all Fs in school, that's, I'm not going to go to the coach and say, hey, the child is my child. When he joined your club, he was making C's. Now he's making F's. What are you going to do about it? Because it's just so far out of his his or her control. So we try to narrow the definition for the purposes of these conversations to the soccer stuff. And as it relates to the soccer stuff, I say, hey, development, as commonly understood, is a process that can be replicated, that can be documented so a process that can be replicated and can be documented 
that takes what the play takes some of the players' in, innate ability, attitude, a lot of physical physicality, all that stuff. So it takes that, teaches them something, gives them a degree of instruction, trains them in accordance to their own process, in an effort to improve individual performance, or I should say, in an effort to improve on-field performance. That's the way I should say it in an effort to improve on-field performance as an individual, as a team, and as an individual within the team. So it's a process that can be replicated and documented that takes what the players are bringing to the table, their innate ability, their physicality, their whatever skills they already have, that kind of stuff, their attitude, gives them some instruction, so it teaches them something. So something's coming into the head and trains them as well, physically, uh, skills, all that kind of stuff. Um, in an effort to improve on-field performance as an individual, so I can take that player, and if I put them in any other soccer environment, you're going to know that this person has been developed. You're going to see it, right? Maybe their first touch is smoother, their soccer IQ scenes, whatever. I'm going to take you out of this environment and put you in another one. You're good. You may it may be a learning curve to their particular system, but but the coach or the observer is going to can tell that person's been developed to some degree. But also as a team, so if I take that team and I put them in this tournament, if I take that team and put them here, and someone's watching that team for the first time, they're going to also be able to observe that that team has their on the on field performance of that team has improved. And then as an individual within a team, because it is a team sport and that individual needs to coexist within the team sport, right? That's what development is, all right, to me. And then the next layer of that is then we can evaluate the process and the people executing the process and the players involved in that process. We can evaluate them in two big areas. There's a subjective evaluation. I'm just looking, I see this, whatever. And then there are objective observations, which I say those objective observations have metrics or should have some metrics. And those objective metrics are defined as uh, it's, uh, things that can be counted can be added, can be subtracted, you know, just can, they're, they're things that can be counted. And those objective metrics are important for a number of reasons. Number one, they allow the club and the coach to communicate their value um, in an objective way. So um, I have seen a lot of teams that I perceive as being very good but they lose or they struggle here or they don't do this and the parents and I'm only saying the parents because I'm typically on the parent side because I'm a parent are really frustrated because they perceive the team is not playing well and because I look at certain objective metrics I would love to be able to tell the parents which I don't in person I don't talk to people like this in person hey, if you were to look at these objective metrics, you would see that we're actually playing pretty well, right? So in other words, your subjective observations are not um, uh, accurate, or they're not, I shouldn't say accurate. 
your subjective observations are not consistent with the objective metrics that I um, use or the basket of objective metrics that I use when I evaluate a team. And if you were to use some of these objective metrics, you would actually, that would actually inform your subjective opinion. Another reason objective metrics are important is because it, it allows organizations to have a systematic response to problems. See, if you only rely on subjective observations or you have no objective metrics at all, you have no way of responding to uh, a problem, right? And you also have no way of establishing what is sort of best practices. So in other words, you've had two teams, similar everything, and you're a club director and you see that one of them, whatever the objective metric is, let's just say that for us, my one of my objective metrics is, is that all my players can, um, you know, say, let's say 1v1 is, and winning 1v1 is, a, is an objective standard of ours or objective goal of ours. And one of the metrics is our players don't lose the ball in one v one situations. I'm just using this as an example, and you have one team where they get, they win ten one v ones offensively and five all one v ones defensively, and in another team they win one one v one offensively and they lose the ball ten times. Well, these are extreme outliers that then would allow me as a club director to come in and parachute in and say, "Hey, what's going on here?" And even if I don't monitor them. Um, every game or periodically like that because again it's you soccer kids move around they change blah 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 if someone were to come to me and say hey i have a problem with what the coach is doing whether it be another coach or a parent then i have a basket of objective metrics that i've already communicated to the coach that i'm going to use to assess what's going on and then i would just watch a film and see what's going on so that's so that's another way you can systematically respond, which then brings to brings us to another point, which is you can hold people um, accountable, right? So if you if it, I would think it would be harsh to hold a coach accountable for a team's uh, lack of development, if um, if you don't have some kind of objectivity in this infused in that communication. Which then brings me to another point, which is objective metrics help you evaluate your own process. So if you see that across the board, uh, you feel like coaches are following your process, but you feel like across, across the board, we're not meeting the objective standards that metrics that we have put in place, then that gives you um, uh, knowledge and information to go back and evaluate your own process. But if it's all subjective, how do we even know that the process is even, it's the process problem or it's the people executing the process or is it children and the families who are supposed to be following the process? Uh, another reason objective metrics are important is because you, with objective metrics, you're able to communicate to folks who can't see exactly what you're seeing, right? So if I'm talking to someone in California that has a U18, and, and you know, I can tell them all these subjective things to look at, but it's based, but 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 what I'm saying is based on what I'm seeing in my experiences. And they when they go and look objectively, they're gonna have a totally different perspective, right? But with this with a degree of objective metrics, even if we say, hey, this is the broad range or this is what I'm looking at, then we can at least start having a conversation around uh sort of what we should, sort of what, 
you know, what is happening, what is going on, right? And so then I go on to say, and so then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a post and I'm going to take this as an opportunity to share one conversation I had with a coach friend of mine that talks about this objective metric piece and, and his his responses are very common to what I hear in the coaching community. And then after that, I'm going to pivot to some other assumptions that I have that when I share these assumptions in one form or another, I get certain responses from the coaching community. And both of those areas I want to explore and hopefully get someone who wants to come onto the show and help illuminate me. And by helping illuminate me and sharing information with me, um, that then will help parents and other coaches out here who are listening. So um, someone posted on social media something to the effect of, you know, that's, it was around this whole winning versus development. And, and one thing that's commonly said is uh, either coaches or parents are focused on winning instead of development. And then I asked a follow-up question saying, well, how do you, how do you know that from an objective perspective that uh, the team is developing. How do you, how do you know? And all right, we get that you should not be focused on winning, especially winning at all costs, but how do you know that the team is um, developing from an objective perspective? And one coach replied, and I liked his response. First of all, the mere fact that he took the time to respond to me, I like that. And I liked his response because it illuminated uh, conversations I've had with many, many coaches over time. And then I said, you know, he's, he effectively said, hey, in our training sessions, we use, we use blocks. And there's certain objectives that we look at in these blocks. So for example, one objective could be passing. So this, in this block, we're gonna be looking at passing and we're going to work on that in, in training and then he should see those objectives being met in the games and I said and then he said let me know your thoughts and I said love it I'm actually a lot nicer in person and then and sorry I'm talking groggy but it's like five in the morning my time I said love it but my follow-up question is how do you think about the number of passes on average and in general for a team? Let's say U11. So just whatever number, it doesn't matter. So for example, how should how many passes or what would you expect a U11 team should be able to connect in a row? And his response is, it's all relevant to the situation. Depends on the quality of the opponents, the stage of the game in the level of the players. There is no standard level uh, of what you should be expected as there are different levels within age groups. And for the most, uh, for most teams out there, different ability levels within teams. There are players playing where they should, should players playing to a high level and players in, in teams at a low level. And so I said this, and then I'm gonna um, and then I'm gonna read the rest of his 
uh, his response. I said, so what would happen if we worked backwards and tracked it over several games as an example and use that to facilitate a discussion? So again, I'm throwing this out to our coaching community. If, if you were to um, um, put my feet to the fire and I'm the DOC now and someone says to me, how do I know development is happening? And I know that there is a lot of variability in the teams. There's a lot of variability in the coaches. There are a lot of variability in the players and whatnot. And, and so it's very hard for me to come up with an objective standard. My suggestion would be, well, let's just go through the data collection process, right? And I might even look at, you know, let's go to the, let's pull up the EPL, shoot, let's pull up, pull up, pull up fantasy stats or pull up the English Premier League, whatever. And let's look at what they, what they uh, measure. And then let's find what is very easy for us to measure and appropriate, or at least a hypothesis of what we think is appropriate for our teams and our players so in the epl they look at time of position possession now i know this is probably an important metric but it's way too hard for us as parents or coaches to collect that data because they using probably some kind of computer system to do it and ai technology and we are not going to do all that so one of the things I'm starting to do, and I'm going to do this over four or five games with my older son's team, and I'll do it with my younger son's team, is I'm going to look at the number of touches each team has during the first 10 minutes of a game. Now, I don't have time to rewatch a game. I barely have time to watch the game live, and I definitely don't have time to go back and rewatch a full game. But I think I can glean a lot by just counting the number of touches that each team has in the first 10 minutes of a game. And if I'm so inclined, I might do it for a little bit longer. Uh, but the bottom is the first 10 munches, touches. And I'm, ag I'm going to be agnostic about what they do with those touches, blah, 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 just a number. Because I did do that with a couple of my son's games. And I saw that there was a relationship between the number of touches and my subjective opinion of that team. I saw that the better the team seemed to play, the more touches they got in those first 10 minutes compared to my son's team. And the and, and vice versa, the least organized I felt like the team based on how I love like the game to be played. And that's very important, not based on, um, not saying it's right or wrong, just based on what I would want to see. I saw that uh, there was a relationship there. Another thing is, um, you know, I could count, I could observe what does the keeper do with the ball, right? Because I also saw a relationship between the way I wanted the game to be played at his, at my older son's age, and and what the keeper did with the, with the ball when they received it in the back, right? But to really apply these objective standards to the other team you would really kind of need to understand what their philosophy is and what they expect the game to be how they expect the game to be played so i'm putting those objective met i'm applying those objective metrics to how i want the game to be played and if this and how that compares to my child's right 
So I'm not going to do time of possession, but I can get an idea if one, if my son's team touches the ball 160 times and the other team touches the ball 60 times, I can get an idea with of time of possession. And vice versa, if the other team touches the ball 200 times and my team son's team touches the ball 20 times, that's an objective metric that I can start looking at. I'm not going to be able to tell you that a team in the first 10 minutes should be able to touch the ball X amount of times. I don't know that, but I can start collecting data. So that would be my first, if I don't have an objective standard, that would be my first, um, that would be the first thing I would tell you. Having said that, if I am an experienced coach or a club director, and I've been watching games as long as many of these folks tell us they are, then I will probably start having a sense of what, of the, of the range. Because even me as rec coach, YouTube coach, I have a good sense now of what, of the number of passes that a team at the various ages should be able to connect. And I said, look, at a minimum, you know, you start getting into my younger son's age of, you know, you, you, you eight, you 10, you, uh, you nine, you 10, you 11, that range, you should, you should be able to see that they should consistently start uh, connecting at least five passes, right? And you should probably, and in a minimum, if you want to argue about that, maybe three, okay? And if it's not, if you have no minimum, then I would be able to explain to you, oh, I don't have a minimum at this point, or they don't apply because they're outlier for this reason. Another objective metric I might look at is when they do score a goal, right? How often are they scoring a goal as a result of connecting at least three passes, right? Which really is two, one, two, and then, and then well, three. So two and an assist, right? I would like that number to get go higher uh, as they get older based on how I would like the game to be played. But again, that's totally up to whatever the person's framework is. I'm sorry, philosophy is. But if I was implementing my philosophy in a uh, club environment, which I'm not, then that would be something that I would look at because that would be something that was important to me, all right? Not necessarily just scoring goals off of the other team's mistakes, but how often are we able to score from building it from the back, working it through the midfield, getting it into wide areas, and then um, getting a numerical or, or qualitative advantage and score. That's what I would believe that the parent is actually paying for, not putting in a high press and taking the ball from somebody from the weakest link in the defense. Nothing wrong with that. That's an important part of the game, but that's it's different. All right. So so I rambled there, but I basically am saying if I don't have an objective standard, then I would at least have a data collection um, apparatus in place to, cal the, to collect very simple metrics, simple data, and then we could then observe them from there. That's what I would probably do. So then um, the coach says, it's about working with your team and a training on a topic, figuring out what they struggle with and set up achievable but challenging objectives to first ensure understanding of the principles and second to increase capabilities of performing that principle. And then I said, okay, I see. I wish there was more of this in the state. So in, in real life, I'm trying to be nicer. So I didn't want to keep going on and on about this. I thought I would just put it in the show for everyone else. And then the coach ends with saying too much emphasis on winning games with players that have been collected during tryouts. And I think there's some truth to that. But again, this is an ethical 
they're placing an ethical lens. And let me say something about this. Um, I've had the fortune or misfortune now of attending what, what people would call ID camps uh, involving my older son. And I have seen really fast, big, and strong players who also are technical enough, right? And I've also seen children, because of my son's age, that 13, you know that the puberty kicks in for some and doesn't for others. So the difference in uh, physical maturity can be vast. So that means I've also seen fast, uh, and technical kids who are tiny and what a, what the coaching community especially from an ethical perspective appears to be telling us is a good coach is able or should be able to evaluate the kids in a scouting environment and see past the fact that some of the kids are technical and as big as me as a grown adult but but no, in six years, the one that's tiny, who is also technical, um, is going to overshadow that child. And I think if you're able to do that uh, consistently, you should sell your services to Man City and Manchester United immediately because they struggle with identifying who are the early, um, early uh, maturers and who are the late bloomers who will eventually go on to play at a, at a higher level. You would be the Omaha on Nebraska. Sorry, you would be the, um, what do they call Warren Buffett? The, I can't even remember, but you would be, um, I think not Sage, they call him something of Nebraska if you're able to do that. I think it's really, really hard. So I'm very sensitive to having experienced this. I'm very sensitive to people, to the plight of, of people who receive this criticism that they are just picking fast and, aggressive and big players because I'm like uh, you know by the time you get to these really high levels everybody is has a, enough technical ability to get by right and the less developed players are not in my opinion with the exception of one at this particular place are like really superiorly technical I think we have a technical problem all overall and so now you're asking someone to evaluate and not pay attention to that I don't I don't I think that's very difficult and I bring that point up to say instead of thinking about it from an ethical perspective I just look at it again as an objective if it was me and I was running the um any program then I would simply say bring your medical that that one pager they give you where they show you what your birth percentile is or I would ask you to put it into a form as you fill it out and and then I would, as trials are going on, I would put a little dot on your penny or I would give you the penny with the green dot. Only me and the coaching staff would know what that means. And it would be a very discreet green dot if you are in the 90-something percentile. And it'd be a very discreet red dot if you're in the, uh, you know, five percentile below average. And it would be a yellow dot if you're average. And, and so as me and the coaches are evaluating the situation, we would see your dot. And then at the end of the session, when we get ready to select the teams, I would tell the coaches, if you got to, I'm making this up, a 16 person team, at least five of them got to have the, the, the dot of prematurity. So whatever, I don't know, but it would be some kind of way. It would have to be systematic and not 
ethical, because I think this is very difficult to ask someone to, to do um, if you're just playing being ethical, because I think they can very rationally look at the situation and very with all good intentions and say, this guy right here is dominating the midfield. He's technical enough. I can get him technical. That's something in his control, but he has all the physical attributes you need to play at the high level, highest level. And this one is really, really technical now, but I think I, in six years, I can get this other guy who has all the physical tech uh, attributes you need to be successful. I can get him technical enough, but I can't make the other one grow. Right. And I don't know how the other one's going to turn out. And what is thrown at our coaches is, oh, yeah, well, when you do that, you're just focused on winning instead of development. And I'm like, uh, I think in real life, it's a lot more complicated. Than that. Um, so that's my soapbox there. So so the next thing is, so let's recalibrate. We're talking about the process of the development. Now we're talking about the development has subjective and objective metrics. The reason we want to have these objective metrics in place is because they validate some of our subjective assumptions and also uh, uh, observations, I should say. They also help us communicate uh, a value proposition. They help us um, is identify areas that are having issues, also identify best practices. Um, they also hold individuals accountable or can hold individual individuals accountable, but they, uh, they can hold players, help hold players accountable but they also uh, are to add a degree of fairness because how are you gonna hold an individual accountable if you're not sure the process actually works with some objective metrics. When we don't know these objective metrics, we can use an exercise of gather dating, uh, sorry, of collecting data and then make a, making at least making observations. And from there we can discern um, if there's any, uh, any trends that we can observe. Uh, I talked about the fact that on the sidelines, I've been on the sidelines just yesterday. Uh, I was at an indoor game where my one of the parent moms, who happens to be my coworker, was asked was asking me if I thought the other team was good. Her eyes glazed over when I, even though she's an accountant, but her eyes glazed over when I said, "Well, I kind of look at their ability to connect passes, and so because they have not connected two passes this entire game, you know." I would need to know more before I made an assertion of whether or not they were good or not, because she was just looking at, you know, how their physical ability and how aggressive they were, but they also were a year, year older. So that's in a situation where subjectively she's seeing one thing, but I said, Hey, if you layer on this, just one objective metric, we could understand each other a little bit better. And that's important because if I'm, Another reason objective metrics are important, which we talked about, is if I'm talking to someone in California and they're seeing something and I'm here in the Carolina, Carolinas and I'm seeing something, to have a degree of objectivity can help us at least understand where we're coming from. So that's that. So then now we're going to pivot to what I'm calling uh, positive and negative correlations. So in a previous podcast, I talked about um, the area of self-improvement. I like to think about it in terms of a tier framework, time spent on that thing, the instruction or the quality instruction you're getting, that's the I, the effort that the person and the people around them are putting in, and the repetitions. And those repetitions can be uh, uh, you know, opposed, in this case, unopposed, individual, team, small side, again, you free play for some, whatever, but that's where you 10 exit. So you got, you, you 10 exit with the time and the reps, right? And and so 
I have these positive correlation assumptions that when I offer them to the coaching community, again, they are put into a frame, an ethical framework, or we are placed into our silos. And so I want to um, lay some of these correlations down now for our coaching community so that they can then come on and address them. So the first positive correlation I have is that the, that the effectiveness of development is positively correlated to the effectiveness of the coach. So again, development is a process where you take what the player has. It's a, it's a process that can be replicated where you take what the player has, you teach them something, and you uh, and you train them in an effort to get uh, better on-field performance as an individual, as a team, and as an individual within the team. And assuming that process has is effective, if I have ten coaches, I'm saying I believe there's a correlation between um, that process, the effectiveness of that process, and the execution of the coach. And it's hard sometimes to have this conversation because people tend to think you're saying you know more than the coach or they feel personally attacked. And I'm looking at it more from a management and theoretical discussion, not like, oh, you're a bad coach. And that means my assumption in many cases is the coach's heart is in the right place. So they're doing everything in their power with the resources they have, but there's something that's not uh, as effective or optimized as effective as it could be in terms of the instruction or the uh, or the or the reps and how those reps are being executed. And that would then create a framework where someone could say, "Oh no 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 no, this car this correlation falls apart because of." X, Y, and Z, at least we can have this, this conversation. But again, when you have this conversation and saying, hey, development is directly tied to the coach, what people will then say is, um, you know, you're focused on winning or you want the coach to be doing this or doing that, or you want something that looks nice. And then another thing that happens with these conversations is we all agree in general, right? We all agree in general. So then what happens is people will say, Neil, surely you're not saying that people are saying that the coach don't matter. No, no, we agree in general. But we are not able to get deeper into the, the details of what uh, this instruction or these reps actually look like. And again, how do we know someone's developing? So instead of saying there's a positive correlation to development, I would evict, I would prefer someone to say there's a positive correlation to development and these are the objective and subjective metrics that we look at to determine if that process is working and where I struggle with is we don't have these because we don't have these objective metrics the whole conversation falls down which then brings me to the next point there in my opinion is a positive correlation between individual performances so the performance of each individual and the team's performance 
And I'm going to read, I'm going to try my best to find uh, a, a response to, to me effectively saying this, and so for, no, for lack of a better uh, term. And I'm going to read a response, and I'm going to try to address it in this podcast. So I'm going to read the coach's, uh, one coach friend of mine's response to something that we were having in chat. And then I'm going to explain how, where I struggle and where I would like more details. So the coach says, hey, and we have all these little debates in the in the Facebook group. You should join the Facebook group if you're interested in uh, wasting five hours of your life talking about you soccer. But anyways, he says, you are missing our message. It works because it works. So he's talking about the algorithm is different than our it works. So he's saying your it works is different than our it, work, it works. You make it about predetermined patterns and planned movements. We make it about discovery for the child. Yours looks pretty, uh, pretty, so it appears productive. Ours looks messy. We don't care because we understand the process from a long-term state of mind. Kids like to play and solve on their own. Adults like scripts their kids can follow. Your algorithm, he's talking about the algorithm, is a script that limits a player's creative process. Where you get this thing right is time on the ball at home. I'm glad to hear that. Where you get it wrong is making this a team game way too early. If the team looks good before the individuals are good, it's probably not good for the players at all. So I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit. So the first thing is, and I've always said this, if what you're doing works for you, then continue to do it. But what happens in our in our communities is we often say, hey, what I do works for me and what you're doing is not in the best interest of development, all this kind of thing. And that's where we would like to get a little bit more details because it's very difficult for me to say what you're doing doesn't work. I can only say, hey, what I do seems to have these results. And I base these results on these particular metrics, which I am happy to share. So that's where that's where we want to go. That's number one. And then the next thing is, I just want to get to the last point is, so if the team looks good before the individuals are good, it's probably not good for the players at all. So they're not saying this exactly, and that's why I'm trying to read this. And I, and I, and it's a um, I'm running the risk of being defensive and playing uh, small ball, but I have to do this because I want to have these conversations on behalf of our parent uh, parent trainers, even at the risk of my own personal sort of people's personal perception of me or my own personal reputation. I believe there's a correlation between the individual's performance and the team. So the better each individual performs, the better the team. And I also believe there's a positive correlation between the team's performance and the, individ and the individual. In other words, I believe that the individual's performances can drive team performance. And I believe that team performance can enhance individual development. I, you know, I don't have, I don't see that as at odds with each other. Said another way, if I were to going back to counting the times my son touches the ball, if I, if the team controls the ball more, that's what I say, it takes the ball faster. I think that 
increases my son's chances, opportunities to develop, right? And, and I can quantify that because I can look, for example, at how often does my son touch the ball? How many 1v1s does he get? How many times does he take the ball? All those, all those things. And then subjectively, I can show film of where a child who touches the ball first eventually comes back around and is the one in a string of passes who um, ends up scoring or gets into this 1v1 situation. And I, I got to do a podcast where I talk about the probability of getting the ball and the probability of having um, meaningful soccer interactions. They're increased by how your team plays. And I think I need to do it. I mean, it's a very simple. It's, a, it's only two things I remember in um, stats is the bell curve and sort of how you can get to a probability through a chain of events. And so I think if you increase the probability, the short version, the, if you increase the probability of a player not losing the ball, then you increase the probability of your child or any particular player having a positive interaction with the ball. And the same thing in defense. If you increase the probability of players making certain defensive actions, then you increase the probability of effectively taking the ball, which then increases the probability of other things. So I don't, I think there's a positive correlation between what you do as an individual and what you do as a team. I don't think it's, oh, it's a team. You got to, you, you focus on the individual first and then as a team, I think, I think they all work together. Right. But, and this is pretty obvious, the things I do, at least for me, or things I think people should do with a team. Um, obviously that's, that's going to be on a, a developmental map. So it's going to be a lot less when they're younger versus the individual skills individual stuff and it slowly should get increased so there's no there's no um there's no divide there but the divide is actually in the details and so if you if you believe that uh there's no objective observations we should be making with the team it's nearly impossible and you don't offer any individual metrics as well especially it's not possible for anybody who is paying with their money or their time um, to evaluate the situation because you're effectively saying this situation or this performance is unmeasurable, right? It just takes a long time. You don't say when, you don't say how, it's just unmeasurable, right? And then there's disdain if you even ask the question. So I thought I would say that. So that's the individual versus the team. So then we go on to winning because it's often said that the development and winning are at odds with each other. And we know that there's a lot of friction when it comes to, to winning, right? You can't win all the time. Uh, soccer is a relatively low scoring game. So a lot can happen. And then somebody could just score on a set piece. Foops happen. So we get that. So we're not talking about um, winning all the time. Or, and we know there are many variables. So you can't read too much into a particular game. And we know kids have all these different experiences. We get that. But again, what I am saying is there's a positive correlation between the coach and development outcomes, or at least there should be. There's a positive correlation between what the coach is doing and the development outcomes, which can be looked at subjectively and objectively. And then that means there's a positive correlation between, and I believe there's a positive correlation between these on-field performance objective outcomes in the individual's ability to perform, 
which also means there's a positive correlation between these objective outcomes, the individual's ability to perform and the team's ability to perform. And I believe there's a positive correlation between the level of the team's performance and their probability to win. And so if all things being equal, if you are developing in an in a accelerated clip, you should begin to eclipse teams who are not on average, right? And so there is a relationship between development and winning, but that relationship may not be discernible or measurable, or it may, it may fall apart a lot at times. But what happens in the coaching community, I, I feel, I'm gonna be a little critical here, is that they want us to believe that there, in many cases, oh, no, 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 there's no relationship. There's just none. No, you can't go, you can't look at that. And I think if you're looking at an entire season, you should start noticing outliers, right? And if you start noticing that, hey, you know, um, we're playing the same level, relatively the same age group, relative uh, amount of experience. If I am seeing this trend, right, then there's probably something going on that would help me. It's just something to think about. It helps me sort of uh, start asking questions. So, so my younger, older son's team, they have, they play in a four-year age gap for a lot of reasons, which is horrible, but still they do. So I know that I can't look at the end result, but I can look at micro stuff because I, I understand its context. I know they play, literally some kids are playing four years up while some kids are playing their age and it really ranges. So I can't look at, in this context. But my younger son's team, on the other hand, the way they are, they operate, it's a one-year band. They have 20,000 kids. So it's a one-year band. So I can look and see over time, you know, how are they able to finish off games? And I don't have a taboo about this. And if they're not, that's fine, right? No problem, because I concede that it's a long process. But then the next thing needs to be I know that it's intuitive for you to look at, you know, how the game ended, but I'm going to share with you, but because it's not so simple, I'm going to share with you these other objective metrics that you should be looking at. It's not good enough to say, oh, it's a long-term process and it's all going to, and they effectively say it's all going to come together in the end. That's not good enough. So it's not good enough for us to say if the team looks good before the individuals are good, it's probably not good for the players at all. This doesn't mean anything to a discerning person. The discerning person says needs to hear, hey, these are the objective and subjective metrics that we look at. And this is how we evaluate game performance. And while winning is great for the families, it's great for the kids. If you look at these basket of things, as long as those are ticking in the right direction, where we believe and we have seen that it's going to happen, that things are going to, um, things are going to be okay at all times. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I think about that. And I think that's it. I tried to try to touch on a few things here in this show at the, at the uh, risk of sounding defensive or in what we call small ball, like getting too much into the details, but I really wanted to produce this piece of content for our coaches who might be listening 
because I would love for you guys to get on the show and talk about really, you know, what is your development process? How do you know the process is working? How do you know there's a problem actually with the coach? How do you know that the process is working? The coach is doing fine, but it's actually an issue with the players. How do you know that the coach is doing fine? The process is doing fine. The players are doing fine, but the actual, the issue is actually more with the parents. How do you know, what do you want us to look at instead of winning? I'm not saying that winning is something that we should look at, but I think it's very reasonable for me to look at their end results. So therefore, because that's a very reasonable and natural response, what do you recommend that we look at the subjective and objective uh, that we look at and how does that play out? And if you don't have the specific answer where you can't say, oh, um, Neil, look at, we, 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 we think they should be able to connect this many passes. We think they should touch the ball this many. That's fine. I don't think most people think like that. But then you sh- we should be able to say, well, here's a, here is a game, right? Why don't you collect this data and then look at this game and collect this data? That's what I would do for my parents. And then after you collect this data, um, whatever that data you think we should be able to collect, then let's have a conversation. That that's that's kind of how I would um, that's how I would begin the conversation with my parents if they had an issue. That's how I would begin the conversation with my DLC if the DLC had an issue with what I was doing uh, and they were observing the game. And then I would be interested in understanding. Well, if you don't look at the game, because I don't find these structured games to be particularly important, how do we think about this in a in a team environment? Uh, sorry, in a practice environment. And that's one of the things that. Uh, you know, I will to their defense, even though I don't like a lot of the stuff my older son's club does, they did do a basically quasi workshop with us on a team training environment and the things that we can look up, look at objectively in a team environment that would help us ascertain if they're, if our individual child is improving and the team is improving. Take that for what it's worth. All right, guys, this is Neil Crawford uh, with Anytime Soccer Training. Let's get better together. Um, Just was looking for a long time for a good online kind of simple training program that my daughter could do on her own. So um, we came across Anytime Soccer and just felt like the layout was really good and, and simple and the trainings are really good, especially the ones you can do right in the living room. And so I had actually gotten my daughter to do the 30-day challenge. I think we just did the ball mastery one. And um, just within that 30 days uh, afterwards, so for this whole season, less starting in September, October, uh, every game, someone would come up and say how much better Grace's footwork has gotten. And I was just like, well, she just did this 30-day thing with Anytime Soccer. So I've been telling people a lot about it. But it was just amazing to me to just see like, man, 10 minutes a day, what 10 minutes a day could do. And-